copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have your copy of God's Word with you, you can either follow along on your phone or use the chairback Bible that's in front of you. <clears throat> this morning, we will be walking through Ephesians chapter 3 as we continue walking through the book of Ephesians, looking at the mystery of the church. Would you pause, though, and pray with me? <clears throat> Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word. We pray, God, that you would give us minds to comprehend the truth of your word. And Lord, we ask that you would work within each of our hearts to love the truth of your word, to remove those things in our lives that would hinder us from embracing your truth. And God, we pray that you would work to not only convict us of sin, but to purge and clear, cleanse our lives of sin so that we might walk in holiness and purity, embracing uh, your mission through us in this world. So now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at the mystery of the church, Mr. Al mentioned earlier the theme of the sermon today was the mystery of the gospel revealed. And this is exactly what Paul is speaking about, this mysterious gospel, so to speak, as some might say. But it's not the mystery as we might think of the term mystery. You see, when we tend to think of mystery today, we, we think of things that come to mind like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson or maybe a good Agatha Christie novel, right? This mystery, the thing that we don't, that we don't know about and, and we're, we're waiting to find out. But when Paul talks about mystery, he's speaking about something that is known. Something that's already been revealed. Paul speaks about that which was hidden in ages past, but has been made known through Jesus Christ. In fact, the mystery that he's speaking about here in chapter 3 points us back really to chapter 2. And so the last three weeks as we've walked through chapter 2, we've seen the mystery of the gospel unfolded or unveiled. As we've seen how God has now incorporated Jew and Gentile into one body, forming the two as one new man. Sort of as a, a third race, the new humanity. No longer is it Jew and Gentile. Now it's one new man made up or comprised of no, created in Christ as the church. And so in chapter 2, we see the new humanity created in Christ. And so this morning, what I hope we will see through verses 1 through 13 is that the church triumphant has a central role in God's mysterious plan for reconciling the nations to himself through Christ. I added a few words in that statement. The church triumphant has a central role in God's mysterious plan for reconciling the nations to himself through Christ. You see, this is God's design and desire through the church, that the church would occupy this central role in bringing the gospel to the nations, that the church would play a central part in reaching the nations with the gospel. And so this morning, first we note this, that a biblical worldview sees triumph in Christ rather than defeat by the world. 
we note that in verse 1 and verse 13 of this text, Paul speaks to this. But before we go into verse 1, would you follow along as I read the entirety of the text, verses 1 through 13. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the central purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. As we consider a biblical worldview, and as we consider that Paul, in his circumstance and situation, could be seen as being defeated by the world since he's imprisoned. For that's what he says in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. In verse 13, so he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. I think we can learn a lot from Paul's faith and conviction of walking according to the will of God. Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. We see this in the book of Acts, chapter 21. Beginning in verse 21, we have Paul having been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. In verse 28, it says, crying out that the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And what ensued after this statement and this scene in the temple was they arrested Paul, brought him before the Roman council, the tribunal arrested him, and then they, they put him in prison and then all the way through, the, through chapter 28 of the book of Acts, we see the, the follow-up for what's happening to Paul as he's imprisoned and brought ultimately to Rome. The point is, what could be seen as a defeat for the Apostle Paul isn't seen that way at all. Instead, Paul, because of his trust in God's sovereign hand at work in his life, Paul says what's happened to him has actually been for the advancement of the gospel. 
And so even though the Ephesian church, the Ephesian Christians are concerned about him, as we see in verse 13, Paul is writing to them saying, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is actually for your glory. He says that which I'm suffering is a small price to pay for obedience to Christ. Because he sees his sufferings as really the cost of their glory. The gospel going to the Gentile believers. Because they've now been made co-heirs, co-members, partakers of God's promises in Christ. And so while the world says we've imprisoned this blasphemer, Paul says I'm exactly where God wants me to be. And I want you to get that. Because that's significant for this biblical worldview as he's trusting in God's sovereign hand and plan over his life. He's saying, I'm right where God wants me. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Philippi when he writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see what's happening in the midst of Paul's imprisonment. The church is being strengthened. It was happening in Philippi and is going to happen in Ephesus as he's writing to the Ephesian brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we learn from the Apostle Paul that even in the midst of suffering, there's great hope in Christ our Savior who's at work in a million different ways through our hardships. He's at work in a million different ways as we live in the midst of our daily lives and as we live out the joy of our salvation, no matter what circumstances present themselves in our lives. So that Paul can say, even in the midst of my imprisonment, I'm right where God wants me to be. This is a challenge for our lives even in the midst of suffering, that we would learn to be content right where God has us. That we would learn to trust in God's sovereign hand, in His power at work in our lives, and that we would learn to live according to the joy of our salvation. So seeing triumph in Christ rather than defeat by the world happens in two ways. First, it happens as we embrace the stewardship of God's grace. This is what Paul is doing. He's embracing the stewardship of God's grace. He sees the big picture. And he's writing to the church, encouraging them. This word for stewardship, as we see in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you. Right? Verse 3. How the mystery was made known by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you'll perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, he says. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He begins by noting this stewardship of God's grace that was given to him, namely the mystery of the gospel, proclaiming this gospel to Gentiles. But this stewardship refers to the management of a household or a business. Household management is the word that it it, it means here. A steward is one who's responsible, get this, responsible for taking care of something that belonged to someone else. For Paul, what's this look like? Well, for Paul, he says, this is the stewardship I was given by God's grace. 
I was chosen as an instrument of God to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Listen to what Acts chapter 9 verse 15 says. God spoke to a man named Ananias, who was a faithful Jew following God, devoting his life to God. And here's what God said. But the Lord, or he was a faithful believer, I'm sorry. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, speaking of Paul, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. You see, Paul saw as his life's mission the responsibility to carry the gospel of Christ to Gentiles. He saw as his life's mission the responsibility, the stewardship to proclaim Christ's death for Jew and Gentile, for all peoples. This was revolutionary in Paul's day. For it was only the Jews who were the people of God. But now these Gentiles, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, these uncircumcised Gentiles have now been brought in to the blessings and the favor of God. The Jews hated him for it. That's why he was arrested. That's why he was charged in Jerusalem. That's why they beat him in Jerusalem. But Paul says all this suffering, it's for the advancement of the gospel. You see, this was, this was what God was doing through Paul. God had made a way for all peoples to be reconciled to him through Christ, and he was, he was proclaiming this message through Paul in his apostleship. Paul's stewardship was to take this gospel message and proclaim it to all nations. So let me ask you, church, believer, what is the stewardship that God has given to each of us? What is God's stewardship in your life, in my life? We see what it was for Paul, right? being beaten and stoned and left for dead and being in prison because he was proclaiming the gospel. What does it look like for us today, for the believer today? How have we been given the stewardship of God's grace? Every believer is a steward of God's gracious calling. And church, hear me out. We need to see this in our vocations in our skills, in, in our knowledge, in our spiritual gifts, our finances, our very lives. Our very salvation is a gift from God. And God desires that every believer would take those gifts and would employ those gifts in the service of God's kingdom. And that doesn't just happen for a preacher or for a deacon or for a Sunday school teacher. It doesn't just happen for someone who is a, maybe a vocational minister, right? This happens for every believer, there's no distinction here. This is why at Crosspoint we say every member a minister. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, we, we, I, I remind us of that verse often because it's so powerful that we are ambassadors for Christ. And we beg the world on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is what God has done in our lives to transform us and create within us a, a new heart. And this is what he calls us to do in the lives of others. We are to evangelize, share the gospel with others, because it's the very hope of Christ transforming us that fuels our lives. You see, God, God breathed life into our souls, and he caused us to be born again. And so we must take that message of the gospel and share it with others, so they too might be born again. You see, this is part of the mystery of the church. 
This is part of the mystery of the gospel revealed that God would entrust such a spectacular, wonderful message in the lives of earthen vessels like us. Mere sinners. But here's what he's done. He's transformed us. He saved us. This is the exhortation of Peter in 1 Peter 4.10. Peter says to the church, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, right? To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, I've been greatly encouraged this week. In the midst of all that has gone on through the ter- tornado that touched down in, uh, in Prairieville um, to Neil and his condition in the hospital, I've watched CP do this very thing in the lives of Church members, exercise concern and show, show care and checking on one another. And I've watched it this week with Neil and Stephanie. I've watched many become the hands and feet of Christ to their family. I've watched many practice the, the ministry of, of presence, sitting with Stephanie and their family as they await the outcome of surgeries. I've watched you cry and pray with her and pray over her and Neil. I've watched the church be the hands and feet of Christ as you've deeply loved and continue to do so. I've watched a beautiful display of the love of Christ walk through suffering and pain with the Jones family. And church, this is partly what it means to embrace the stewardship of God's grace, to minister to one another. It certainly means that, that we are a body, one body, as we'll see in a moment, co-members together, but we're more than that as well. We're co-members together so that we might reach out into the world also. So this stewardship looks like ministering to one another, but it also looks like ministry outside of the body of Christ. It's external as well. As we embrace the stewardship of God's grace, holding on to a biblical worldview, we also live out the gospel before a watching world. When the nurses and doctors saw us gather around Neil's hospital bed before he went into surgery, they were able to listen in on something that was supernatural as we went before God's throne, interceding on behalf of this man who was on the brink of death. They were able to hear the church come together. They were able to see the love that that we had for one another. They were able to see the unity in the body of Christ. And so as we embrace this stewardship of God's grace, we live out the gospel before a watching world. And this is so that we see the promise of triumph in Christ rather than defeat by the world. What does our stewardship look like in our cultural context? It's a good question. Because what may seem like a defeat by the world may actually be, or can and is actually, a refinement of the church and can actually strengthen the church. I'm referring primarily, one of the biggest things that we've seen in our culture recently is the redefining of marriage. 
And consequently, what's happening in churches all across our nation is the refinement of marriage now. Christians are being called to do the hard work of examining God's design for marriage. Examining God's design in their own lives. Christians are doing the hard work of standing up and being vocal now. Waking up. Here's what God's design in marriage is all about. And proclaiming the gospel even through God's design in marriage. It's a direct statement of the gospel. And God's covenant love for his people. Christ our husband and church the bride. These are only really two examples. But there are many, many more. As the church, we must embrace the stewardship of God's grace in our lives between one another, but also as we live out the gospel before the world. Seeing triumph in Christ rather than defeat by the world also happens as we celebrate the mystery of the gospel revealed. We see this in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, right? Members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What he's saying here is that the Gentiles are made equal in God's kingdom. The mystery is the inclusion of Gentiles with Jews as God's people. No longer is there this distinction between Jew and Gentile. So in Scripture, if you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. And a Gentile might cover All nations, it covers all nations, anyone who's not a Jew. So multiple nations here, many nations are included in this term Gentile. In fact, all nations who aren't Jews. And so Paul says this is what his apostleship is all about. It's about proclaiming this message of hope that now the Gentiles have been included as part of God's people. In fact, he gives us three terms to understand this. And in the Greek, they're synonymous terms. They all begin with the same prefix. That we are co-heirs, right? We are fellow heirs, are co-heirs. We're members of the same body. We're co-members. And we're partakers of the promise in Christ. We are co-partakers. This speaks to the life and the hope of the church as co-heirs. We're equal heirs of God's kingdom. This means we're not second-class citizens. The believer is adopted into God's family. And when, we, when we're converted to Christ, when we place our faith and trust and belief in Christ, we become part of His family. As co-heirs, we have an equal right to God's kingdom and an equal entrance into God's holy place because His Spirit resides within us and He calls us His own. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We're co-members. This means we're, we're of the same body. We're one body, and it uniquely speaks of the church. Together, the church is one body. This means... When one hurts, the other hurts. When one suffers, the other suffers. Together, being one means that we are in one sense indistinguishable in God's eyes from any other member. Spiritually speaking, at our our conversion to Christ and new birth, we're given the same spiritual genes that make us of the same family of God. I can't overstate the significance of this glorious truth. 
practically it works out in the fellowship of the church. As one body, we care for one another. As one body, we lean on one another. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice with them. But it also means that we need one another. It means that these gifts that God has given us that we're to steward need to be engaged and employed within the body of Christ. That we are dependent on one another for our serving and our gifts in advancing God's kingdom. It means that as members of the body of Christ, each of us has a responsibility. Each of us has a stewardship. You ever think about this reality that your gifts are not for you? Your gifts are actually for fellow members in the body of Christ. God has gifted you to serve one another, to serve others. God has called you to steward these gifts as you steward them in the lives of one another. But not only are we co-heirs and co-members, we're co-partakers in the promise of Christ. You see, all who are in Christ receive the promise of eternal life and share with Christ in the immeasurable riches that he offers. We saw this in chapter 2. We're endowed with power from on high through his spirit. We're brought into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. Meaning we're triumphant in this life because the power of Christ is at work within us. And this is the mystery revealed that in Christ there is no longer distinction between the nations but one new people created for one new kingdom, the kingdom of God. This past week, I met a man named uh, Kenya Goro from Kenya who is... uh, through a mutual acquaintance, a friend, we got together for lunch one, one day this week. And um, he is, he's a believer. He's a solid, just a tremendous guy. I could see the joy of the Lord on his face. And he's here in the country looking for work. He's moved back to the U.S. Uh, and he's well qualified. And so I think he'll find a job. But he was stopping here in the city just to visit friends, maybe to look for some work. Uh, And I had the opportunity to go to lunch with him, take him to lunch. And in taking him to lunch, it was just really incredible to be able to sit down across from a man that first time to interact with him, but there was just this unity of spirit because of the common faith and the common spirit that we have in Christ. And this, in one sense, is what we see in this passage as being co-partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. That there is one new humanity That all nations come together in one spirit to worship Christ. We are born again of a a new spirit. And in Christ's presence, we are equal. We have equal access into God's presence. We have equal blessing through the inheritance among the saints. And see, this is the reason that it's worth celebrating. Because we have hope. We have the hope of eternal life. Though we're lost in sin, deserving of God's wrath, here's what He has done. He has lavished His love upon us in the most spectacular way. He has given us unmerited grace through the salvation that comes through Christ because Christ died on the cross, suffering the wrath of God, and He took the punishment that I deserved upon Himself, and instead He gave me His righteousness. So now I can come into God's presence because of the righteousness of Christ, not by anything I have done, only by what Christ Himself has done. This is the hope and the mystery of the gospel. 
not only do we see that a biblical worldview sees triumph in Christ rather than defeat by the world. Secondly, we see that a biblical worldview realizes the importance of the church in accomplishing God's global mission of reconciliation through Christ. I know that's a bit of a long point, but it's all important. This is what a biblical worldview helps us to see. We see when we see this big picture of what God's doing, we must see the importance of the church in going about and and being used to accomplish God's global mission of bringing this message of reconciliation to the world. And so first, note this. We are made ministers according to the gift of God's grace. Look at what he says in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. This word minister in the English Standard Version, it says servant in maybe the NIV or maybe some of your versions read servant instead of minister. But the word here is diakonoi or diakonoion. Doesn't matter. Diakonoi, okay? It's a servant. It's what it's what scripture speaks of as the deacon. It's where we get our word deacon from. And it speaks literally to waiting on tables. And so he says, This is what God has called me to do. He's called me to serve Gentiles, kings, even Jews, through the proclaiming of this message of Christ. In one sense, he is serving the bread of life. To people. This is what this is what Paul is doing. And he says he does this by the working of his power in verse seven. This working of his power, the word for work here is the word where we get energy from and power is dunamis, the word where we get dynamite, though it's not like dynamite just speaks of power, though. This is God's power at work. And so it's God's power energizing the believer, energizing Paul at work within Paul to change him from the one who had persecuted the church to now the one who proclaims the gospel for the building up and the growth of the church. Paul says, this is what God has done. He has made me a minister according to this gift. He has made me a servant, one who who serves this truth to all people so that all may come to know Christ. And in verse 8, we see that This reality prompts humility, a spirit of humility in Paul's life. Paul says in verse 8 that he's less than the least. There's an attitude here of humility that accompanies this calling, this service, this ministry that he is engaged in. He actually coins a new word. It's hard to communicate in English, but he means that he's the least of all. He's the leaster of the least in one sense. You see, Paul views his life as belonging to God. And here's what he does. He humbly submits his life to be spent in service to Christ. You see, for Paul, he's captivated by the wonder of God's grace in Christ that would save him, one who persecuted Christ. We should be captivated by the wonder of God's grace in Christ. Paul was made a minister, a servant of God's grace to preach the gospel by God's power at work through him. Let me ask you a question, believer. How has God made you a servant? How is God at work in your life calling you into his service? 
You see, we must learn to ask the right questions as we submit our lives to our Lord. How, God, do you want to work through me? God, how have you gifted me and in what ways do you want me to use my gifts for your kingdom work? You see, the truth is, believer, God desires to work through you and he desires to work in you. His divine will is to empower and use you as a tool in his hands to bring the message of the gospel throughout all nations, to live out the gospel in the midst of the body. But not only do we see that we're made ministers according to the gifts of God's grace, we see that the church is given a central role in proclaiming and displaying the gospel to the world. In verses 8 and 9, we see that Paul says it's his responsibility to preach Christ to the nations. This is why Paul says at the end of verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, that his purpose is to preach the gospel and to reveal the truth about God. The riches of Christ, which can't be traced out, are limitless. They're unsearchable. And Paul's life mission is to reveal the mystery of the gospel by preaching Jesus Christ. Because it's through the power of the gospel that lives, the lives of all who believe will be transformed This is why we as Christians see the mission of Christ as our God-given mission in the world. This is why we go to Uganda as a church. This is why we spend our resources and invest our resources to help guys like Peter and Degwa, who's in Kenya. This is why we go and preach the gospel to the nations. This is why we engage in missions here in our city. as home groups going and serving, doing service projects, going to places like St. Vincent de Paul, helping out with... ESL, we have ESL ministering to the nations as they're here in our city. In a few weeks, we'll serve the core members of City Year. We'll share the gospel and the hope of the gospel with those who have come into our city to live among and to minister to the impoverished. You see, we want to share the hope of the gospel. God has made us stewards, servants, ministers according to the gifts of His grace. And so the church is given a central role in both proclaiming, but also in displaying this ministry. He says in verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What Paul is doing in preaching the gospel and what we do in sharing the gospel is we're shining the spotlight for all to see salvation in Christ. This word for plan or administration, it's the same word for stewardship that's used in verse 2. And this is what God has given to the church. This is the stewardship that God has given to the church. As the church stewards the mission of Christ in the world, we will win those in the world to Christ. Listen, church, this is God's divine will, his divine plan. Do you believe that? That God wants to use your life. Your words to share the hope of the gospel and to win others to Christ? Are we living in such a way where we believe that? That our words matter, our proclamation matters. 
Because the church is given a central role in proclaiming the gospel to the world. We also see that the church is given the central role of displaying the gospel. In verses 10 and 12, he says to inform the world and angels of the church. Do you realize that as the church faithfully lives out God's call, he says the angels are looking on with amazement? This is what verse 10 says, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One writer says the church becomes a window through which the angels of heaven see the glory of God displayed in the world. What amazing thought. That the angels watch because we're part of the unfolding mystery of God's eternal plan of redemption. And listen, church, this happens because this happens as we proclaim the gospel and as people believe in Christ and are born again. This happens as the church ministers to one another in word and in deed. And this happens as the church grows in unity as one body. Hughes in his commentary says this about verses 10 through 12. Imagine a cosmic drama. The theater is history. The stage is the world. The actors are the church. The writer is God who directs and produces the drama. And the audience, cosmic beings. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The history of the Christian church is the graduate school for angels. And the reference that Mr. Al read in the beginning of our time together today in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, at the end of verse 12, Peter says, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Listen, things into which the angels long to look. Church, after understanding this passage, I don't think our view of the church can be too elevated. The church has a central role in proclaiming and displaying the gospel to the world. You see, God's eternal plan of redemption is to use this mystery, the church, one new people, to make the hope of the gospel known to all nations. And a biblical worldview realizes the importance of the church in accomplishing God's global mission of reconciliation through Christ. And a biblical worldview sees triumph in Christ rather than defeat by the world. And a biblical worldview will step back and see God's sovereign hand at work and say, God, how do you want to use me in making your gospel known, in advancing your kingdom in the world? So let me ask you, believer, what holds you back from being united with the local church and membership? What holds you back from being part of the body of Christ, the local body of Christ? Is it pride? I don't need that. I'm doing fine on my own. Is it conversion to Christ? Not having yet become a believer in Christ, one who has confessed their sin before the Lord Jesus and believed upon the cross of Christ and the resurrection that Christ has given? Believer, how does God desire to use you in serving His body, His kingdom? What are, what is the gracious gift of God in your life that he's entrusted to you, that he is calling you to employ and use in service for his people.
this morning, I want to challenge you to respond as the Lord leads you. Maybe for you it looks like surrendering your life to Christ. Maybe, believer, for you it looks like entering a new area of service or surrendering your gifts to being used for the service of God's kingdom. Maybe for you this morning it looks like uniting together with the body of Christ, the body of believers locally who want to serve God's kingdom, who want to advance the kingdom of Christ in the world. You pray about how God is leading you this morning and you respond as the Lord leads. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for the hope and the truth of your word. We thank you that you have included us in the most spectacular way in your plan of reconciling the nations to yourself. We're humbled, Father, that you want to use each of us, that you have gifted us in specific ways to serve you and to serve one another. And we pray, God, that you would be exalted in our response to your word as we seek to live it out. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in and through us, through your church. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.